blasting from the spaceship in the sky to the simulation in the mind. Let's all embark on another journey of Conversations on the Fringe. All right. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. My name is Josh, and welcome to the Red Pill Project's Conversations on the Fringe. We're unfringed, right? Like unhinged? Yeah. I just came up with that. I was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Too bad the domain's taken. But this is where we talk about those things that, um, well, get us away from the politics of the week. Get us away from the kind of evil that's being perpetuated on this planet and look at things that kind of expand our mind, our consciousness, um, and our ideas and our imagination. We, we we talk about a variety of different topics on this show specifically. And this is, yes, one of my favorite shows to do. This is absolutely one of my favorite shows to do. That's why I still do this show. Um, I remember back in the day when it was just me and my co-host streaming on YouTube every Friday night, you know, 14, 15,000 people watching and having a few beers and just having a great time. Um, and now look at this. We're, we're doing this still on Friday nights after all that and just having a great time doing it, right? I love having these, these in-depth conversations with the thinkers of our age, with people who have done their due diligence and research on various different topics from the esoteric to the occult to ancient history, alternative history, UFOs, aliens, to the understanding of the spiritual world, to these hidden kind of traits that uh, we have innate within inside of us. And uh, tonight, I'm going to play an interview that I recorded yesterday. So the woman that I interviewed, her name is Lynn McTaggart. And uh, she's in the UK. So unfortunately, she couldn't make it tonight. So we recorded it yesterday. But if you don't know who Lynn McTaggart is, um, just go out and do a switch, a, a quick Google search. You'll find out. She's absolutely fascinating. Um, I've been known, I've known her work for a very long time. I read her book, The Field, a long time ago. Uh, she's an award-winning journalist and author of seven books, including The Power of Eighth, The Field, The Intention Experiment, and The Bond. And these are seminal books within the whole kind of what is considered to be the new science um, phenomenon. And so if you're familiar with people like Greg Braden, Dr. Joe Dispenza, uh, Lynn Metagrid is good friends with all of them and collaborates. She's done university studies uh, that you'll hear about um, on intention and how intention works, the intention to heal, heal people to the intention to create various different opportunities and events in life. And so we're going to go ahead and take, uh, we're going to go ahead and play that interview here in just a minute. Before that, I wanted to get some, um, some kind of updates out there. Um, Vince has a night off. He'll probably be in the after chat going into that tonight. We'll be doing an after chat. So that'd be great tonight. We're going to be doing our, our fringe after dark after chat. And oh, did we lose Facebook? Hold on. Let me check something out real quick. Must be something in that intro video that Facebook doesn't like. If we're good on Facebook, yeah, we'll go ahead and give me a thumbs up. Oh, well, we're still good on Facebook. Okay, good. All right. But, um, yep. So we're going to be do Fringe After Dark tonight. That is on socialredpill.com. And so if you guys want to check that out, socialredpill.com, if you're not on there, right there, it's right in front of the screen, socialredpill.com. You can scan that QR code. You can just go directly to the website. Um, it's free to join. There are subscriptions available there too, if you want to help support us, but absolutely free to join. And then tonight we'll be doing fringe after dark. The way to get there is really easy. You go to the events tab. You're going to see social red pill zoom, 
or social red pill chat. I think it is social red pill zoom. You go into that. Um, after the show, we should be, uh, many people will be joining in there. I'll be in there about 30 minutes after the show. And then we'll have a recap of the show and talk about some, oh, sorry, wrong one. We'll talk about a, a lot of cool topics uh, in the, in the fringe category. And so uh, a lot of changes coming up here for the Red Pill Project. A few of them is the daily dose beginning around on or around June 1st is going to be moving probably an hour ahead or a lot, yeah, an hour behind. So instead of 8.30 p.m. Eastern time, it's going to be at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and there's a reason for that. There's a good reason for that. And for all you old fans of a show called Insomniac Hour that we used to do, we might have some good news for you. But uh, just keep that in mind. And, uh, well, without any further ado, let's just go ahead and get into this interview with uh, Lynn McTaggart. And uh, you can find Lynn, by the way, her her website is linked in the description box below. And her website is lynnmctaggart.com. And my mods will go ahead and put that out there for you. And we'll I'll, I'll go ahead and put it on the platform right now so you guys can see that. That's her website right there. I'm going to go ahead and put this on, on Pilled. But if you've ever been in like any of the um, alternative personal development communities, uh, the, the power of mind communities, she's an absolute legend. So um, it was a joy to talk to her and have this interview. Absolutely fascinating and uh, some great information. So I'm going to pull this interview up and then we'll go ahead and play this. So if, if once the interview starts, let me know that you guys have great audio. You can hear everything really well. And then I will come back after the interview and we'll do a recap and we'll talk about intention. We'll talk about the mind, the subconscious mind, how this all works and the integration of our reality, all these good things. And then after that, we'll go to Fringe of the Dark. So let me know if you guys can hear this as it plays. I'm going to open this up right now and just give me a five, five when this starts playing. If you guys can hear it, if not, then I'll come back and reset it. We've just been having problems with the audio going in here. So. All right, welcome to Conversations on the Fringe. I am here with Lynn McTaggart. Lynn, how are you doing today? I am great, thanks. Great to be here with you. It, it, it's great to be here with you as well. I mean, we live in an age right now, we were just kind of talking about this a minute ago, that there's a lot of problems in the world. The world is going through massive amounts of chaos. Um, the last few shows that I've done with some really good friends of mine have talked about an aspect of fear that is implemented throughout the whole world. People all over the place have this, this, uh, this burning hole of fear within them. And I think that it's incredibly concerning, especially when that fear can derive a level of intention within the worldview and the world perspective. Um, now, you're no stranger to the word intention, to the whole world of intention. You've uh, operated the intention experiment. You've had multiple different books out there, the field, was one of my favorite books that I read a long time ago. And, you know, there's a quote out there by Max Planck. And it's all matter originates in existence only by virtue of force. We must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. Now, when you think about the force or think about the field, is this the kind of idea that you have in mind is that there's this kind of like biological or conscious internet? Yeah, it's a quantum internet, and it 
unites everything in its invisible web. You know, at our subatomic uh, nethermost level, we are not a solid or stable thing. We are vibrating packets of energy, trading energy with other subatomic packets of energy, like an endless game of quantum tennis. And that game of quantum tennis among all of the subatomic particles in all the things in the world makes up this giant quantum field. So yes, we are part of that um, that field of all possibility of all things, which has two huge implications. Number one, we're all connected. And number two, we can access all of that information. And that is one of the things that we have as a latent human capacity, the ability to do things, to access information beyond our senses. 100%. And I, I you know, for my, me and my life, I've experienced it in multiple different occasions. Um, it, and with this aspect that we're all connected, how does mm -hmm. our intention, individualized intention, play mm -hmm. into this role? Because I was mentioning before this aspect of fear and this world is in a state of chaos. Uh, what can we do to change and shift that? What can we do? And, and do you think that maybe a lot of this chaos in the world is derived? from the kind of the confusion of the individual on their spiritual path in life and just kind of more moving towards a, a material world and this devoidance that is coming about from the spiritual. Okay, I think we are on this self-destructive path because we're following the old, outdated, and ultimately wrong scientific story. You know, lots of things write the story we live by, but the biggest author of all these days is science. Science tells us who we are, and from there we determine how to live. And the scientific story that we are following, um, and that forms the basis of our society, is more than 300 years old. Um, it is derived from all of the work of Isaac Newton, who described a very well-behaved world of separate objects operating according to fixed laws in time, uh, time and space. Now that light, light motif of separate things got amplified by the work of Charles Darwin, who was very influenced by ideas about population explosion at the time. So he believed that life must proceed through struggle. And that's why he came up with, he never actually said, but his whole theory was essentially survival of the fittest. So those two ideas coalesced into <clears throat> our modern world with the advent of industrialization, et cetera, and the idea of machines. Um, we created a world where essentially it was involved in competitive individualism. And that is that whole idea, that whole light motif is what is destroying our world. And on top of that, of course, we have the issues of intention and individual intention. So I want to just disabuse everybody of the idea that when you do intention, it's only sort of the half hour in the morning when you're meditating, you do your intention, you send it out, and that's the only thing the universe hears. 
you are intending at every moment, every thought you have, and there's 70,000 of them typically, that gets sent out, that compounds into an intention. You know, everything we have, and almost all of that is fear-based, is negative. You know, most thoughts people have, 80% of them are judgmental or negative. And those are becoming intention too. So all of this is a very mixed up way of living in the world. And I believe it is completely contrary to our true natures, which are, we're not separate, we're all connected. And we only live and thrive when we do operate as a connected whole. We need community more than we need to breathe. And, and I love that perspective as well, because a lot of the things that we talk about is, is getting back to reestablishing that, that foundation within the household as well as the community. Um, after everything that's happened the last few years, one thing that's happened is a lot of people are divided. A lot of people are no longer communicating. People aren't going across that fence and talking to their neighbors. They're not inviting people over for barbecues. We're not having that level of community, especially within the family structure. And so I 100% agree with you that we need to get back to this whole aspect of, in the sense, this communal living. We're actually talking about it last night on one of my shows, Birth Chronicles, where prior to 1920, what you had is you had a a child that was raised in an extended family. You had a grandmother, a grandfather, two sets. You had aunts and uncles. You had brothers and sisters and cousins. And everybody was a part of that child's life and helped raise that child and bring them up. And we look at how that has systematically moved away from that over time. And that now, you know, we're people are lucky if they have two parents in that household that raise that child, that child. So I think it's incredibly important as well. Um, going into the intention experience, can you explain this a little bit to us and kind of tell us how you got into this and maybe your your epiphanies, your ahas, and, and then kind of what your goals were when you discovered it? Okay. So I wrote a book called The Field, which was published around 2002, I believe. And that book propelled me in a completely new direction because I had started out my life as an investigative reporter of all things. You know, I was busting baby selling rings in my twenties with hidden tape recorders. Um, and, you know, I wanted to put bad guys into jail. So I got very interested in, first of all, medicine and health and uncovering things about that. And in the course of doing that with, uh, the magazine, ultimately, my husband and I started called What Doctors Don't Tell You. I kept finding really good studies of spiritual healing. And I kept thinking to myself, wait a minute, if you have a thought and you're sending it to somebody else and you're getting them better, that has to undermine everything we think about how the world works. And I set out to find out why this was. And that book became the field with all of the radical ideas that I found that were being discovered by frontier scientists, physicists, biologists, etc., who were just making these quiet but explosive discoveries in their lab, which compounded into a completely new science, a new view of the world. So I wrote that up 
in the field. But there was some of that science, which were very good experiments demonstrating that thoughts are not just things, but things that affect other things. So again, being the hard-nosed journalist that I am at heart, I said, okay, how far can we take this? What are we talking about here? Are we talking about, you know, shifting a quantum particle, a tiny little effect? Or are we talking about curing cancer with our thoughts? And another thing really intrigued me. What would happen if lots of people are thinking the same thought at the same time? Would that magnify the effect? So at, the, at that time, I knew a lot of these scientists who were consciousness researchers, and I also had a lot of readers. The, the field was in 30 languages by that time. So I thought, well, if I just put them together, I'll have the biggest global laboratory in the world. So that's what I did. And we started out small, and I chose scientists from different prestigious universities, like um, uh, everything from uh, University of California, University of Arizona, Penn State, Princeton, uh, numerous universities in Europe. And I wanted to do different ones at, for different experiments so we wouldn't be accused of bias. So we started out just trying to make seeds grow faster. Ran that experiment and it every single time the seeds sent intention grew significantly higher than three other sets of controls. I'll tell you about the first one we did. I was in Sydney, Australia and I had an audience of about 700. And so I said, hey, take part in this intention experiment with me was the first one with the University of Arizona. They sent me four photos of 30 sets of seeds labeled A, B, C, D. I had the audience choose one set we were gonna do intention for. I didn't tell the scientists back in Arizona which ones we were doing, sent intention. I told the scientists then we were done, still didn't tell them which ones. They planted the seeds, five days later they measured them and lo and behold, the seeds sent intention grew significantly higher than controls. That's when I unblinded the study and we found out. So let's unpack this for a second. Yeah. I'm in I'm in Sydney, Australia. The seeds are back in Tucson, Arizona, eight thousand miles away. That is, if you measure it from Sydney via California to Arizona. It's even longer the other way around. Also, we were sending intention, not to the seeds themselves, but to a photograph of the seeds, a, a symbol of the seeds, a, a photographic representation of the seeds. And yet we were having an effect and we ran it five more times. Same thing, wherever I was, whatever size audience, including a big audience one time over the internet, seed scent intention grew significantly higher than controls. We moved on. We did loads of experiments trying to purify water. We then moved on to, I was tired of seeds and, and leaves and water. And so I said, come on, let's do something huge. So I had a team of scientists and we started doing peace intention experiments. We've run 10 of them to date. And then we've even healed somebody of 
post-traumatic stress disorder. The peace intention experiments have been for the war in Sri Lanka, violence in Washington, twice, violence in St. Louis, Missouri, officially the most violent place in America, um, two southern provinces of Afghanistan during one of the uh, anniversaries of 9-11, that was the 10th anniversary, and, and more. And of the 40 experiments we've done to date, 36 have shown measurable, positive, mostly significant effects. There is no drug out there, by way of comparison, that has that kind of consistent track record. And, and those are amazing results. Um, so you healed someone with PTSD, you've done the, these, these peace intention experiments. Um, what, what would be your ideal experiment? What, what would be one experiment that you would want to do that you haven't done that would maybe be on a global level? I mean, maybe, maybe instead of a small, small groups, you have hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Okay. Well, one of the most, a couple of the most intriguing experiments were um, one we did um, for Jerusalem. Um, this is about 2017. Um, I was intrigued by the fact that I was surveying the participants in my intention experiments from 2008 and discovering that these experiments, particularly the peace intention experiments, were having extraordinary effects on the participants themselves. That was the weird thing, this mirror effect. So when we were doing peace intention experiments and I surveyed them and said, hey, how's your life been afterward? I was getting back answers like, I've made up with my not so nice boss or my estranged partner or that child of mine, that grown up child who hasn't spoken to me for 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. People talked about, and it was about 40% of them said they feel more love of it for everyone they come in contact with. I mean, these are people who are starting to hug strangers. It was amazing. I also found that about a third of the participants with every intention experiment had healings. They had, you know, they were either vastly better or completely cured of a variety of conditions. Mm. So that was pretty amazing. Um, but one of the most amazing experiments, which we have on film, um, concerned Jerusalem. So it was one of those hot spots that I said we did a peace intention experiment for. And I've done these on a variety of platforms. We started out just doing it on my website and controlling the pages. So everybody, you know, my web team controlling the pages so that everybody would see the same page at the same time. Um, with this, and we've moved on to, you know, all kinds of platforms, even YouTube and et cetera. This time we had a specific platform that enabled us to put cameras in different locations. So we had cameras in um, eight audience auditoriums in different Arab cities. And the ninth camera was put in an auditorium of Israeli Jews. So we had Arabs and Jews taking part, sending intention to a part of Jerusalem suffering from a lot of violence. Afterward, because of the special equipment, 
I could speak to them, they could speak back to me and each other. And so I called on them uh, auditorium by auditorium. And they were people from you know Jordan and Oman and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, et cetera. And I had had to orchestrate this whole thing with both sides refusing to speak to the other. They were hated enemies. After this experiment, they were sending love to each other. They were saying, my God is your God. It was this big love fest. It was amazing. It went viral the, in both Israel and also in various Arab countries. What had happened, this, this little event had caused this major shift. And I found that too when I did an experiment um, for maintaining peace and calm in Washington during the inauguration of Joe Biden. After the January 6th disaster and the storming of the Capitol, I just wanted to do an intention to, to calm things down. And so we did. And again, it was a love fest. I had invited um, to be special participants, Republicans, Democrats, members of the police, African-Americans, you know, all the people who hate each other and are polarized from each other. And again, they were all saying, sending love to each other. So my ideal intention experiment would be getting a load of Republicans and a load of Democrats together and having them do an intention. Because what I've discovered afterward, because I kept saying to myself, why? Because this had also happened with our 10th anniversary of 9-11 experiment, where we sent intention to the two most violent provinces of Afghanistan at the time, the headquarters of the Taliban. This is back in 2011. And I had invited both Arabs and Americans, and we found, again, a love fest afterward on my Facebook page, them writing back to each other saying, you know, hey, you're my brother from the other side. You know, I this has healed me so much as an Ameri American, a member of, of the USA, and feeling so destroyed about 9-11. This was so healing. And love being sent back and forth. University of California at Berkeley um, studies looking at when people are involved in an altruistic act, as it is with the peace intention experiment, there it really affects a thing called the vagus nerve, which is the longest nerve in the body. It goes from the neck and winds its way through all the organs and is very involved in our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, and also creating a feeling of common connection. And what he discovered, this guy called uh, Dr. Dacker Keltner, is when we do something altruistic, we are more likely to identify with people not like us. And so with these kinds of intention experiments, it's clear the heart leaps across the fence. So my ideal one, get a load of Republicans and Democrats together or warring tribes of any sort and bring them together. Big intention experiment and watch what happens. It's interesting too, because I'm, I, one of my shows I do is in the political spectrum. And that's what one thing we talk about is, is let's 
let's get everybody together. Let's have a big party. Let's let's get happy. Let's let's talk about common ground and common interest and and have that intention set. Uh, for me, looking at kind of what a intention is, one of the ways that I explain this is I explain attention versus attention intention. And mm -hmm. I always tell people, like, if I'm going to give attention to something, I take a lasso, and I throw it around it, and I tighten that imaginary rope that produces attention, a line of tension between us, where intention is I have that same object that's external to me, and I have it in my mind's eye, I have it in my imagination. I take that same lasso, and I brought, I bring that line of tension and inner tension towards it, and I attach an emotion, and I attach an end state feeling. Is is this your kind of thoughts on intention or what would you define intention as? What we know from some of the new science is that we are leaky buckets. You know, we all send out a tiny current of light. This was discovered many years ago by the late physicist, German physicist, Dr. Fritz Albert Popp. He found all people are sending out a tiny current of light and this light drives internal processes it comes out of dna uh, it's you know it is global in the body but it also is a conversation it's sent out to other living things and other living things are sending back light too so in a sense if you and i were sitting in the same room we'd be having two kinds of conversations a verbal one and one of light Studies on this light have shown that when healers send intention, the light vastly magnifies in from their dominant hand, interestingly enough. So I think of intention as coherent light. But I also want to say, as I say, that our thoughts are light too. And our thoughts are being sent out every moment. As I said, we have 70,000 of them. We think we're being focused on something, but we're also, all of those other judgments we hold, all of that stuff rattling through our heads, every last bit of mendacious thinking, that's also an intention, and it becomes our life's intention. Unless we become much more focused in what we're thinking about and much clearer in what we're thinking about. And that's the problem. Most of us aren't. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just look at the world and we can see massive examples of exa of, of, of this. Um, so are you talking about biophotons here, the, the kind of the biophotons here? So we have other people as well. We have uh, Dr. Uh, Wilhelm Reich, who was the lab assistant to Sigmund Freud, who came out and discovered what he called orgone energy, which was very similar to the biophoton bioplasma theory. Um, and it, it's interesting because you have Dr. Emoto who came out and did the water intention experiments, which if we think about it in the sense of intentional light being coming out of our eyes and our skin, the photoreceptors of our skin and being directed towards the light now or towards the water and not this holds that emotion or this holds that information structure, it starts to make a lot more sense. Absolutely. I mean, water is like a tape recorder. It's been demonstrated. It wasn't just demonstrated by the late Jacques Benveniste, the French biologist, but also taken up by 
Luc Montagnier, the French co-discoverer of the HIV virus, he carried on with a number of experiments looking at water as a memory and also the fact that information was held, it was electromagnetic and held and could be transferred. He put one substance with water next to another one and he found that the, the other um, container of water had the information inside too. It had somehow teleported. So he was working on that, ridiculed for it, but his science was sound. Um, we do know water is, is a tape recorder. And Italian physicists, the late um, uh, Professor Giudice and um, another one, Preparata, both studied water and called it said that it has coherent domains, which means water molecules uh, just um, surround another molecule or information in the other molecule and essentially take it on. So it tape records it. Yeah, and I know people say that we're carbon-based life form. I like to say that we're water-based life form. And it makes a lot more sense when we look at it in that perspective. Um, now, talking about this, this field, this is a permeating field throughout the entire universe. So do you believe that this could extend outside the planet, across the universe, uh, that we can affect things, other things, other than just human life and human emotion, can we affect other things within our reality? Oh, goodness, yes. I mean, we've demonstrated that. And there's a huge body of evidence about it. I wrote about that in my book, The Intention Experiment, that we have the ability to affect everything from single-celled organisms to other human beings, and of course, beyond. I mean, um, my intention experiments, um, the, for instance, the one for St. Louis, Missouri, I worked with a professor of statistics on this from the University of California, Dr. Jessica Utz, who is a noted consciousness statistician, you know, studying consciousness research, and she's very unbiased. And so I got her three years worth of violence data from St. Louis, three years before and then six months after our intention experiment. What we did was we decided to focus on the officially most violent um, area of St. Louis, which is the fairground area and neighborhoods. And <clears throat> so we got data about fairground and the rest of St. Louis and the surrounding neighborhoods. And we looked at it for three years before, six months afterward. Now the trajectory of all those neighborhoods and St. Louis as a whole was violence and property crime, just on an absolute upward trajectory. So we saw that, and then afterward we looked and compared. After six months, St. Louis as a whole, both violent and property crime continued to go up. Surrounding neighborhoods, violence and property crime continued to go up. Fairground area, property crime continued to go up, but violent crime, the focus of our intention, went down by 43%. Hmm. So those are the kinds of statistics we've seen. Even Afghanistan, we had the low, you know, the biggest drop in um, injuries and deaths. So said a NATO general who provided me with the statistics of, of 
any time that year and probably during the war. So there was this massive drop. So we can see effects on things and people and events. There's no question about that. And there's no question that we have effects. You know, we have huge effects. But what I'm most interested in and what I've been playing around with, both with the big intention experiments where we've had up to 25,000 people joining in, I've also scaled this down to small groups. Mm -hmm. And I started doing that in 2008. In 2008, I wanted to know, well, what will happen if I do this in a workshop? Because I was seeing all these effects with the big intention experiments. So I didn't know what to do. I was kicking it around with my team and my husband, who's also a good journalist. And I said, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll put them in groups of eight or so, and I'll have them send intention to a member of the group with a health challenge. And my husband, Brian, turned to me, and he's a great headline writer. And he said, I love it, the power of eight. Hmm. That's how it started. We did this in a workshop in Chicago, put people into groups of eight or so, had them send healing intention to a member of the group with a health challenge, and have them come back the next day and tell us what happened. And I pretty much thought it was going to be just a feel-good effect. You know, like getting your back massaged by a friend or having a facial. And that's not what happened. What happened was this. A woman who had been limping all weekend from very bad arthritis walked in normally. Somebody else who said they really they suffered from chronic uh, depression and had been for years said it had lifted. And somebody else with bad IBS said her gut felt normal. Somebody else with cataracts said her eyesight was 80% better. And I was just totally disbelieving of all of this. I said, wait a minute, I'm not a he healer. I'm a hard-nosed researcher, investigative reporter. I don't do this stuff. But I was intrigued by it. And so I kept doing it in workshop after workshop after workshop, putting people in groups of eight or so, having them send intention to someone in the group with a health or some other challenge. And we were getting, you know, hundreds and now thousands of healings. Um, I have seen two people get up out of their wheelchairs. I've got them on video. Um, we, we put them on our website. Uh, one of them was paralyzed from the neck down. I've seen numerous cases, many cases of stage four cancer. A woman at my retreat last year wasn't even going to come. Um, she was so ill and her son made her come. She did. We did in a big intention for her. Her group did. And it started her. I just spoke to her about a month or two ago, started her on a course of healing that has completely reversed her cancer now, uh, about eight months later. We've had many like that. We've had a woman who was losing her sight. She now has nearly 20-20 vision. We have so many cases like this and more. And also people healing other aspects of their lives, their finances, their, their uh, career, their relationships, or getting a new one. I mean, um, one of my favorite stories has to do with Joy, who was, <clears throat> I think she's a woman in her 60s. And she hadn't had a relationship for a long time. And she said, I'd like to bring love into my life. 
So her power of eight group, and she was part of a year-long master class that I run every year where I put people in, I teach them, I put them into groups, and I observe them and monitor them and work with them, et cetera, for a whole year. So her group did intentions for her out of nowhere. And this was during lockdown. A boyfriend from 35 years ago calls her. Now she is now in Australia. He's in the UK. He calls her. They start up this conversation, this connection, etc. Turns into a long distance romance. And guess what? He flies over to Australia and they're together now. Wow. So I see this over and over again from students of mine in my various intention class, uh, classes. And so I know it works. I now know it works. I've seen it thousands of times. And that's amazing. And I want to get into the healing aspect of this in a second. But the first thing I want to ask you is, in the sense <clears throat> of the, the intention experiments, and I don't want you to give too much away, is, is how is this organized? Is this all the people focusing on one intention and directing that towards uh, the, the target, whether it's the, the, the person, the object, the country? Or is <laughs> it different? Like like remote viewing, for instance. Remote viewing, you're given a, a target that you don't know what it is. But yet you bring it in and you start to see things upon it. One of the things that we did on our platform is we created a symbol. So we all had a part in creating a symbol, just our own symbol. What we did is we would fill that symbol with information, whatever it might be, whatever we wanted to focus on. And then we would have one emotion directed towards that symbol and whatever the reflection of that symbol was, would we look for mm -hmm. manifestation. Right. No, ours is just, I don't reveal the target until we start the intention experiment. That was one reason why we, in the early days, we had our tech team flip over the pages um, so that people couldn't find out what the target was until we started the experiment. Because, you know, we're dealing with sensitive energy here. We don't want people to start um, thinking about the target before we start the experiment because it invalidates the experiment. Remember, these are real experiments. We've got a scientific team measuring our results. So we need to be as clean as we can about them. So yeah, it's very simply all pe you know all of the people participating thinking the same thought at the same time. And there's a variety of other techniques that I use on intention experiments but and I also teach in more detail in all of my classes, but essentially it is all holding the same thing at the same time and no intention ever since I started has been held for more than 10 minutes. So a lot of people think, oh, I have to go into a meditative state. I've got to do all of this stuff. We have found in neuroscientist studies we've done, we've done some neuroscience studies with Life University, which is the largest and most prestigious chiropractic university in, in the world. Um, they were really intrigued by my power of eight um, outcomes. And so they said, let's do some brainwave studies. And I said, great. So a team of neuroscientists got a batch of student volunteers from Life University to create power of eight groups. And we put them in, we had seven or eight of groups, and we put an EEG cap on one member of each of the groups. And we discovered, to our astonishment, 
that the outcomes look nothing like those of the brainwave signatures of meditation. We thought they were going to look identical. They look nothing like them. Wow. What they did look like, though, almost identical to the brainwave signatures carried out by the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Andrew Newberg, of Sufi masters during chanting and Buddhist monks during ecstatic prayer. So my people were in a state of ecstatic oneness. And that is what they tend to, what people in power of eight groups and even intention experiments tend to talk about, feeling a state of ecstatic oneness. But here's the difference between us and a Sufi master. First of all, they only hold it for 10 minutes. My student volunteers in this, in this series of studies had never even meditated before. They'd never done power of eight groups before. Usually to get into that kind of state, you need to go through hours of priming or you need you know, years of disciplined practice to become a Buddhist monk. Our people were total novices and yet they were transported into the miraculous. So I always talk about power of eight groups and say, you know, you don't need sweat lodges. You don't need years of discipline practice. All you need is a group and a common intention. And it's a fast track to the miraculous. Oh, that's fantastic. Talk to me about time and this field. Is time relative? Is it linear within this field? Or are you finding out that in the sense of intention, time is not? It, it's kind of just, it, it's this fabric that can be manipulated. That's such a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, in quantum physics, and any good quantum physicist will tell you this, there is no such thing as linear time. Human beings have created linear time, but there's not only no such thing as time, it's life is much more like one big smeared out now, but also there's no place in the brain that actually understands and connects with time. Even worse than that, if you suffer from amnesia or depression, not only do you have difficulty dealing with or understanding your past or even remembering your past, but you also cannot envisage, envision a future. So we don't understand time and there is no time. And I have found that with a lot of the work I do. Now, I run one retreat a year. We're running one in September in this amazing place called Broughton Hall. It's the runner up for the location of Downton Abbey. So it's this big 3,000 acre stately home estate. Um, so we're running this, this uh, retreat as we did last year. And we do a Heal Your Past retreat. So what I do is use intention back in time because what we're dealing here with is not necessarily fixed events. We're dealing with energy. And so what we do is change the energy around those painful or traumatic events. And it's been extremely effective. I've seen it heal so many people the last retreat we did, I had numerous people say 
they'd had really bad relationships with their parents. And they were able to drop all the emotion around that. When one case, her father was dying months after she attended the retreat, and she thought it was gonna be really difficult for her. And this is a woman called Lee. And she said, I was able to wish him well on his next journey, have no negative emotion about it, and I just was able to drop that heavy baggage after he went. And this had been a really traumatic childhood. So I found it works out of time. And we see that also with many of the studies on intention have been done out of time. You talked about remote viewing. Many of the studies that were done in Princeton were done with pairs of remote viewers and traveling partners. And the remote viewers back in the lab would have to draw and describe where their traveling partner was going before the traveling partner had even been given the assignment of where to go. And the drawings are spectacular in their accuracy. So there's so much evidence, even the random event generator studies at the Pear Research Center at Princeton too, many of them were done out of time sequence. So somebody would be sitting in front of the REG machines, sending intention, but after months after or weeks after it had been run and still have the same positive effects as though they had been sitting in front of it while it was first being run. So there are just so many studies of this. Hmm. And, you know, the, the belief of what's going on is we don't change the past. The future changes the past or the present as it's unfolding. The future changes the present as it's unfolding. I remember when I was writing the field, being dazzled by all of this research and saying to Robert John, the Dean of Engineering and the person who started the Princeton Pear Project, how can this be, Bob? How can all of these amazing effects happen? And he said, it's easy, Lynn. Take time out of it and it all makes sense. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I loved that. I think that was really essentially and is today my mantra you know, take time out of it and it all makes sense. Because we're the ones who create time, probably to our detriment. That's mind-blowing too, to think about that, because I, I love that mantra there, is to take time out of the equation. When you do, everything can be resolved because there's no there's no rush, there's no hurry, there's no, um, there's no you know, falling for it and, and, and dwelling on the past or any of these things, is that now you can take that time to heal yourself from whatever that was, whether it was a trauma in the past or, or whatnot. Um, I, I like to think of things in the sense that um, the universe itself is based upon relationship. Everything that we do as beings, everything in the universe is a relationship. We have a relationship to each other. We have a relationship to our existential reality. We have a relationship to, to the matter in front of us. And that we have a finite amount of energy within these bodies, although we are infinite souls, a finite amount of energy in these bodies. And so therefore we can only allocate so many relationships. And when we hold these through the past, 
if it's a negative emotion or trauma or anything like that's attached to us, it takes up that energy and that affects us in the future. So I, I love the way that you say this because when we look now to heal the past, it's really healing these these past relationships and traumas and mitigating that that energy usage that is being built up over time and then relinquishing it and bringing it back into the being and then you just feel rejuvenated feel healed absolutely and i think another thing that is a real healer is a small group i mean um, a woman the other day said something i absolutely love she said her power of eight group because really a cornerstone of all of my work all of my courses all of my retreats is getting people into small groups and she said it's like my virtual first aid kit because she's got all of her power bait group on a whatsapp line and if something's going on with her that's negative she'll just ping a text to them and they'll all that's the signal for them all to stop what they're doing and do 10 minutes of intention all together for her and she says it works again and again and again and I've seen that, as I say, whether it's in person or virtual. And loads of my groups, you know, there are tens of thousands of Power of Eight groups now, are, you know, most, the vast majority of them are, are meeting virtually. And I, I love what one of my students said. Um, his name was Jerry. And he took my master class or one of my courses during lockdown. And he said at the end of it, the most amazing thing for him was meeting his group week after week after week, mm. having the connecting with the compassion, the love, the extraordinary connection they had. He said, I've had more love from this group of strangers than I've had any point in my life. And he loved it so much. He joined another one the following year and it was just the same. And he said at the end, I now know what love is. And I think, that's the big important piece here is, you know, as I mentioned early on, we were always meant to be a part of a bigger whole. And one of my books, The Bond, I was trying to answer Darwin and say, were we meant to be this competitive and individualistic? And the overwhelming answer in the research is absolutely not. We were meant to share, care, and be fair. Um, all of the evidence shows we were meant to be part of a community of some sort. And it's so healing. Groups of any size, connection of any size, heals everything from heart attacks and heart disease to strokes and the, even the common cold. So I think that whole thing there, plus the altruism of spending, you know, in a power of eight group seven eighths of the time you're sending intention to someone else but what i have found with my students with my groups is that it doesn't matter whether you're a sender or a receiver just like with the big intention experiments the senders get healed you know i had a uh, a guy, Wes, who was suffering from lifelong depression ever since as a young man, he'd been yanked out of college when he was studying biochemistry and sent to Vietnam during the last year of the Vietnam War. So I met him in his later 60s and he had given up hope. 
He had come back so traumatized. His life went on a downward spiral. He even lost the love of his life and to cancer, had to pay overwhelming medical bills, lost his house. It was so sad that by the time I met him, he had sort of got to what the use stage. And so we did this intention. He was going to put himself forward in this group, but uh, he felt there was a woman there who had late stage cancer, so she needed it more. So he was just a sender. After doing this, he had an extraordinary vision of meeting during a dream, meeting his 19-year-old self on campus of his college, and this, and somehow the young version of him conveying to him, don't worry, there's still time. And that experience changed his life. He suddenly became gregarious. It was like Scrooge on Christmas morning, saying hi to everybody, plugging back into his life, joining courses, doing exercises. He's now a completely realized human being again. And it was one little intention as the sender, not even the receiver. And I see that over and over again when people are stuck, my students in my courses, I will invariably say, get off of yourself, intend for somebody else and see what happens. And invariably they do move on and they get what they need. <laughs> and that's an amazing story too, because I mean, we have so many veterans out there right now that have these types of, uh, of illnesses, suffering PTSD, and all these things that could just definitely so much just benefit from this in the world. And I mean, I'm pretty sure their family members are going to hear this and they're going to start thinking, well, how can I help? And what can I do? And so for anybody out there, I'm, I'm telling you right now, you guys need to go on over the Lynn's website. It's in the description box below. We're going to get it out there. Um, one thing on that too, is it was kind of an idea that was coming to my head when we were talking about this is that you have this, field, right? That's penetrated. So DNA itself, there was a, a, a study done in 2014 by a guy uh, from Columbia University, Dr. Martin Blank. And he came out and he was studying the effects of electromagnetic energy on DNA to see if it damaged DNA. Um, what he found out is that DNA is an electromagnetic transducer. It sends and receives signals within the microwave bandwidth. It's also a fractal antenna. So it keeps its self-symmetry as it breaks down. Now, it seems like kind of what you're talking about is we have something called intentional resonance to where when these people are working together in their group of eight, they're sending this intention out towards the person they're healing, but they're also resonating that attention amongst each other that maybe is getting picked up by their DNA and replicating the pattern. Like the gentleman is he wasn't the, the one, the target for the healing, but yet he got the healing. It was as if he had a feel that, that resonance that intentional resonance himself. And once he did, he recognized it, and boom, came right back to the normality in life. Absolutely. You know, very quickly, people in a group of eight or so, or even if it's 25,000, begin becoming entrained. You know, when two guitarists, for instance, start playing together or jamming together, very quickly, their brainwaves start operating in sync. So brainwaves, think of them as peaking and troughing. So they're going up and down and maybe they're like this when they start, but then they begin peaking and troughing together. And that makes the signal stronger. So that's one reason I think these groups are so powerful. But remember, 
are brainwave studies where we showed that the parts of the brain that make us feel separate, the parietal lobes, they sit toward the back of our heads. They tell us what's me and what's not me. Those were dialed way down, and so were the parts of the brain, the right frontal lobes involved in worry, doubt, negativity, also dialed way down. As I mentioned, these are people who were, according to their brainwave signatures and their descriptions, in a state of ecstatic oneness. I think oneness is feeling and actually experiencing oneness is totally transformational and healing. Because, you know, we talk about we're part of this field, we're in the field or whatever, we are the field. A lot of people say to me, how do I get into the field? And I say, well, you don't need to get into it. You're part of it, you are it. But we don't experience life that way. We experience life as competitive individuals, you know, as in separateness. So when we do in a power of eight group, I believe that is the secret sauce that creates these extraordinary transformational healings. I mean, that plus, as I say, altruism. If you look at the science of altruism, it's like a bulletproof vest. People who do things for other people live longer, healthier, happier lives. So all of those things together, plus intention, are totally transformational. Wow. So powerful. And I'm much appreciated for you joining me today. Um, what do you have coming up in the future? And you got any courses? I, I know you had that one seminar. You got any books coming out? Okay. So, well, I'm working on very early stages of follow-up to the field. But um, what I have right now is I have a course, if you've never taken one before with me, called Intention Essentials. That's coming up in uh, the end of June. And that is an online course and also has live interaction with me. Um, so that's worth checking out. It's on my website. I've got our Heal Your Pass retreat once again at Broughton Hall, which is, as I say, this amazing mix of extraordinary history, a 16th century stately mansion to stay in, but also uh, wonderful spirituality because the owners uh, are very spiritual. And so they've created spiritual spaces, a fantastic fire pit and spa, wild swimming, labyrinths, all of that. So it's an amazing amazing estate of 3,000 acres. So that's in September. And the final thing I've got going is a thing called the eight revolution. Mm. You know, when I was looking at the state of the world and we all know it's falling, you know, it's falling down now in lots of different ways. And our leaders seem completely unable to fix things. I thought, well, it's not going to happen from top down. That's not the way that revolutions start. And I mean social revolutions. Um, and I thought, oh, I need an army of change makers to do something here. And I thought, well, I've already got an army of change makers. There are tens of thousands of power of eight groups around the world. So what if I called them in and gave them some tools? And so that's what I've done. It's called the eight revolution. And I'm inviting anyone who's part of a power of eight group or wants to be power, part of a power of eight group to come to a private place on my community site. This costs no money. And I am providing these groups with free tools 
to create a new world. And they are tools for using intention and also recreating local their local communities, all kinds of radical things they can do. They don't have to give up the day job. There are little things they can do that make huge differences. So I'm giving them all those free tools out. You can just find that out on my website too, under free tools. Fantastic. Lynn, this was an awesome conversation. Um, I, I can't wait to talk to you again. Much appreciated for joining us tonight. Just a wealth of information. Much appreciated. Guys, we'll be back with more conversations on the fringe right after this. All right. So that was my conversation interview with Lynn Metaggart. And um, pretty profound, the, thing, the things that she has accomplished in her life in the sense of these intention experiments and intention itself. You know, I, I loved her definition of this, right? That it's this, this energy that is actually brought out from the body, the biophoton, the bioplasma, however you want to look at it, that it's the carrier of this intention, that it actually has substance and it is actually a thing. And I, I like thinking about it that way as well. And, and it's interesting too, because when we start thinking about that internally, if, for example, you right now went out there and thought about the internal power of who you are, right? I guarantee you, when you start thinking about it, you don't extend it too far. You like, you think of it only as a small little field, but it's interesting because I remember reading stories of like the good swamis and stuff like that would come to in the cities. And before they even stepped foot in the city, when they were like 20 miles outside of the city, people in the city, their attitude, their whole demeanor would begin to change. People would be happy. Uh, they'd be gregarious, right? They, they would have this kind of this umph within their step. And nobody even knew that this person was coming to town that day, but then they would show up and people were like, oh, well, maybe that's why we're all feeling this way. But it was that intention driven, that energy of that human being that was passing on to all these other people and resonating with them. Now, I liked when I actually talked about intentional resonance and she was talking about the Vietnam veteran who was part of the intention experiment that actually led to the healing of a lady, but also himself. And I, I thought for a minute there, kind of similar to some experiments that we ran on the Red Pill Project um, on one of our groups. And the way we set these up was that we created a symbol that we all focused on. And the symbol um, would have a certain intention or we would want to pull information out of the intent, uh, out of the symbols. So what we would do is we would all focus like our location or what we were doing or an object or a color into it. And like, it would be like five of us and one would have like, okay, I'm going to focus on red and they send that into the symbol. And then the other four have to go out there and try to guess it. And what was interesting was we, we were getting like the red, but then it would be like, someone would say like, well, spaghetti sauce. And be like, whoa, how I got that color is because it got spaghetti sauce. And someone would be like, I hear water splashing. Someone was at the beach, right? And this was contrary to the actual target that we were trying to do. So it was as if people were picking up this, this ambience or this resonance of energy that was outside of the original intention, but it was just this field, this biofield that exists, that is outside of time, is outside of space, that it is interconnected amongst all of us. And it acts at the moment of thought. And that we can resonate with those fields with each other. And I liked how she also talked about how that love is that, that aspect of this, right? 
love is being within that accepting field, that field of gratitude of another, right? So pretty cool interview right there with Lynn McTaggart. And uh, I see Slumdog out there. I see a lot of people out there chatting it up. Very cool. Glad to have you guys all here on a Friday night. Uh, this is our fun night. This is where we we discuss all the fun stuff. We keep politics out of it. And remember, when we go to when we go to Fringe After Dark here in a little while, we keep politics out of it. <laughs> no politics tonight. I just uh, by the end of the night, I'm pretty burned out, and usually doing two or three shows a day. So by the end of the night, the last thing I want to talk about is politics. The last thing I want to talk about is the unfolding global conspiracy. I want to talk about the stuff that makes me happy. I want to talk about the stuff that that gives me a good perspective on the world, things that kind of bring you up in life, right? And so what are your guys' thoughts? What are your guys' thoughts on the interview there with Lynn Metaggart? Let me hear maybe your questions. Maybe let me hear what your guys' feedback was. I know that um, my audio was a little bit low on that one. I apologize about that. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll try to get that fixed the best we can. And, uh, so Susan, Susan says, I've been able to do remote viewing and premonitions. I also can send thought messages to friends and relatives. And I think that that's one of the ways that this actually happens is that we notice it. I think everybody has this gift, but it's like any other gift. It's like reading a book. You have to, you know, dive into reading that book and you become to understand and listen to those words more and more, begin to understand them a lot better. It's like learning anything. The more and more you do it, the better you become at it. And so that's pretty cool, Susan, right there. And, uh, you know, as well is family members. They'll be like, Hey, you know, were you, were you thinking about me or did you, did did this symbol mean anything to you? And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's actually, yeah, that is. And they're like, whoa, that's pretty crazy. And you're like, no, I knew it was happening all along. But it appears that there is this field that exists and permeates the entire universe. And it surrounds us. And if we can resonate with it, if we can choose to become one with it, then we resonate in that field of, of, of life. But then I believe that everybody has an individualized field. And that we can tune our fields together and that this is a way to communicate. This is a way to share emotion and intention and ideas as well as various other things. Uh, I believe that you have a frequency or a, a certain frequency that you're going to be at in the future and that you can resonate with that. Um, there are some great training lessons out there about quantum jumping. Uh, quantum jumping is absolutely fascinating. And in this perspective, what it is, is that you have a doppelganger in an alternative universe. And if there's an infinite amount of multiverses out there, an infinite amount of multiverses out there, then means that you have a multiverse in which you're Elon Musk or a billionaire. You have a multiverse where you're a concert pianist. You have a multiverse where you're a painter, a photographer, um, you're an engineer, whatever it might be. Uh, someone who's, you know, has an IQ of 250 whatever it might be. And you can go into a meditative state and you can resonate with that person through these types of exercises and pull that information in. And, and if you think about how you pull that information in, well, imagine that if you were in this alternative dimension and there you are as a, uh, an artist and you just experience what that person felt like, what it felt like to be within their being, then you're, 
producing a resonant resonance with that person. And so when you come back here, you match that feeling that information actually travels along that line. And I mean, this is not like hoo hoo magic or bullshit. This is legitimate. Like this is real people do this real people learn skills directly out of this and they pull this information out. This kind of brings you this perspective that of the Akashic records is that there's this information flowing everywhere throughout the entire universe. I, I like to think that all thoughts that have ever been thunk are still existent in the universe. And that if you, if you place yourself in that position, you can be a, become a receptor for those thoughts that you can become in tune with those thoughts and you can make them your own and you can download information about you, yourself, your, your future, your past, your past lives, whatever it might be. So fascinating ideas there, exactly what she's talking about. Um, and, and it's crazy that she's done it in universities, uh, universities in a scientific methodology to where it's recorded, that it's measured, and that it's validated incredibly accurate. Um, she goes, she, she went on to tell, you know, that she cured people of cancer. She's cured people of illnesses and diseases. I heard Joe Dispenza talking the other day, actually the limit Taggart, um, talking about how, uh, a quadriplegic showed up to one of their events and this person was walking afterwards, which is just miraculous. Um, and then it gives you the idea of, of, of Jesus. Maybe Jesus was showing us the ultimate secret that focused intention aligned with gratitude for life and being mixed in with the, the love of an individual selfless has amazing healing powers. Hmm. Fantastic. Think about that, right? Big divine energy. I like that. I like that. Let's get a shirt. All right. So I'm going to open this up for questions. So if you guys have any questions, Please feel free to jump in right now. And one thing I'm going to do, though, <laughs> is I'm going to play this flashback from the 1980s. And I did post this on my Twitter, so you might have already seen it. Um, there it is. And, and this is uh, a TikTok video that came up today. Coherence on Amazon Prime. So th this is something that Roxy said. Anyone interested in the doppelganger multi-version of yourself, watch Coherence on Amazon Prime. Um, I'm going to have to check that out. Thank you so much, Roxy. Roxy actually texted over to me. I want to check that show out. So, But I, I wanted to play this scene because <clears throat> it, it made me think symbolically back to one of my most favorite movies from when I was a child. And this person absolutely nails it, but but check this out and, and let me know your guys' thoughts. We'll talk about this here in a second. Tell me why this scene from The NeverEnding Story seems to hit way harder now that I'm an adult. For real, check this shit out. But why is Fantasia dying then? Because people have begun to lose their hopes and forget their dreams. So the nothing grow stronger what is the nothing it's the emptiness that's left it is like a despair destroying this world and i have been trying to help it but why because people who have no hopes 
easy to control. And whoever has the control has the power. Who are you really? Who are you really? So it's one of my favorite movies. Fred Savage, right? Fred Savage was getting the book read to him, right? Trey you, Falcor, when I was growing up. And maybe now I understand why. See, Fantasia, the world of imagination, is it not? Fantasia, the world of imagination. And it was interesting because he was talking about how hope is dying. And it occurred to me, it dawned on me, that you can't have imagination without hope. That hope is a critical ingredient in bringing imagination to life. And wouldn't that also be intention to where hope, imagination aligned to a positive end state? I think so. And it's interesting that that, that was in 1984 when that came out. And those words ring true today. That if we think about it, think about all the mindless drones that we talk to on a daily basis. And I've been having conversations with them on Twitter all week. People who can't think for themselves. People who who reference just mainstream media. Oh, it says this. This is the truth. This is the truth. People who have the information right in front of them, but yet cannot decipher exactly what it's saying. But they look at me as the bad guy because I'm like, hey, no, it's actually saying this, not, not that. And, and here's why. And they go, no, you're wrong because I'm right. These people have lost hope. They have lost imagination. And so this is why in the world of what we all do here, that if anybody comes in with any relevance of hopium, any lies, propaganda, disinformation that soothes or fills that empty void of hope with inside that person, that person latches onto that. That person latches onto that because that's what they need to survive. They need that hope to move forward within life. And you know, my, my regular podcast is called the Hopium Free Broadcast. And it's like that for a reason. It's not because I don't have hope. I absolutely have hope. But I'm not going to lie to people. I'm not going to blatantly lie to people. I'm not going to tell you things that I know are not true. I'm not going to tell you things that are going to lead you in the wrong direction. And see, that's what Hopium is. Hopium is a distraction. Hopium is a drug made for people who have no hope. That's why disinformation, propaganda, and misinformation work. Because people get so beaten down within this world of chaos that their body is in such a vulnerable state due to the existential reality, the external environment. Bombarding them with information every day, attacking them like a wild animal. That they lose that hope. 
And once that hope's gone, the imagination becomes nothing more than a daydream. And once you've taken a man's dreams, there's nothing much left to live for. And so this hopium, which is disguised as disinformation, propaganda, misinformation, wild speculation. This is the drug. This is the drug that fills that void with inside someone. This is the thing that they need to shoot inside their brains, shoot inside their minds to survive. It's the only thing that'll get them through it. Deep down inside, they probably know they're wrong. Whenever anybody shows them the information, anybody shows them the truth, the truth is immediately rejected. The reason it's immediately rejected is because that truth is not an easy pill to swallow. It produces chaos within their reality and their paradigm. It changes everything that they know and they're comfortable within. It makes them wean off of the hopium that they've been feeding themselves to fill the void of losing their own hope. That's the interesting world we live in, isn't it? And see, we need to bring back hope. We need to bring back that love within the heart. We need to make that long journey between the mind and the heart. I think it's something that in this spiritual battle that we get distracted from. That at the end of the day, we watch all the distractions going on about us, whether it's the, the White House, whether it's the southern border, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's the threat of World War III. And we forget about that personal development. We forget about that, that feeling, that being inside of us. We forget about how hope married, marries imagination and creates our reality. <clears throat> you got to think for a moment is if we all went back to that hope and imagination and aligned that correctly in a state of intentional resonance, how could that change the world? Derive said it best. Oh, absolutely. It's the reason hope was left in Pandora's box, Roxy. Hmm. We lost hope. Absolutely. Well, guys, we're going to continue that conversation. We're going to continue the conversation on intention, imagination, on hope, on, on resonance, on spirit, on consciousness. We're going to do that at the socialredpill.com. If you guys want to check us out, this is our private social network. Easy to join. You're going to go to uh, the socialredpill.com on your PC, or it'll come up, might come up with the Mighty Networks app. You just download it. You type in social red pill. We should come up. Um, that app, that link right there the qr code will take you directly there you sign up real quick you don't have to get a subscription package you can get the free profile and then i'll be posting the zoom information here in a little bit so you guys can join in um it, it's already started so there's probably just jim's probably already in there knowing him <laughs> um but uh i'll be in there in about 15 to 20 minutes and we'll continue this conversation continue this conversation um I hope all of you guys have a great weekend. I hope all of you guys fill your hearts with hope. I really do. And have those positive intentions and imaginations brought outside of you into the world so they can resonate, become your reality. So much love, respect. God bless you guys. You guys all take care. We'll see most of you guys on socialredpill.com. Everybody else, have a great night. We'll see you next time.
Either we will get the full cooperation of other governments to stop this menace, or we will expose every bribe, every kickback, every payoff, and every bit of corruption that is allowing the cartels to preserve their brutal reign. And it is indeed brutal. And uh, they call me iPad became. <laughs> I, it's, I think it's, I, I haven't, look. Frankly, uh, if you look at the media, where the media is a closed media, we don't have an open free media anymore. They don't want to hear anything. They don't write about it. It's, a, it's collusive. It's, uh, nobody's ever seen anything like it. It all happened during this period of time. It happened just before the election. They wouldn't talk about certain subjects that you know better than anybody, Michael. And, uh, you know, that's the beginning of communism.